With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Acts of violence and aggression are often cited when touting the best rivalries and supporters in the world. A threat of violence and danger has always been woven into the fabric of the game. The flares, the smoke, the security, the dogs, the moats, the projectiles, and yes, the violence is always bubbling right under the surface. That's authentic, and that's the rub. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about what exactly is authentic soccer culture. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Good morning, Mr. Mossy. How are you this week? I am good, all things considered. <laughs> all right, let's get right to it. First off, you're not wearing anything. Uh, there's no jersey. Last week you said you were going to wear your Wolverines of Michigan uh, paraphernalia had your team won. They somehow conspired to lose to the Buckeyes of Ohio State, a team fraught with all sorts of weaknesses. And yet, not only did they lose, but they lost badly, right? What was the final score? It was in the 60s or something ridiculous like that. 62-39. How is this possible, and why is your coach still the coach today on Monday when we are uh, recording this? Yeah, this was the college football equivalent of Germany 7, Brazil 1. <laughs> I have to say, I, I have no evidence of this. I didn't tweet it or anything, but uh, I actually had a bad feeling about this game, precisely because I didn't think our defense matched up very well with their offense. So while it was bitterly disappointing, it was not entirely unexpected. All right. Well, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, harp on this. Uh, I'm going to kind of use my opportunities as we go through the week to, to pick and to needle you about it. So, But I'm not going to do it here today. But, but uh, regarding your apparel, we were talking earlier, uh, you are a connoisseur, if you will, of hats. Uh, in particular, people that see you either on the pod or just walking around, you will notice that you wear these Izod, Lacoste type of things, you know, with the ones with the alligator or the is it crocodile or alligator? Whatever it is up on top there. Why do you favor these types of hats? Uh, I was home for Thanksgiving, and my mom, half jokingly but half serious, asked if I shouldn't explore a sponsorship uh, agreement with <laughs> yeah, Lacoste. because you're constantly wearing yeah. them. Uh, yeah, no, I just like these style hats. I think it's sort of, they're casual enough that it can be worn in kind of casual scenarios, but they're nice enough that you can get away with wearing them. In a is it true that scenario. you have two different types? You have one that's casual, informal, and then you ha actually have a formal Izod hat? Correct. And the this one that ridiculous. was meant to be the formal one has gotten so dirty that I've had to shift that to the casual role. And then I found this one in my closet that's clean enough that it, this well, is now the... Well, look, we are in the gift-giving season, by the way, as we ramp up here to... Uh, Christmas. So if uh, people out there that have uh, the inkling of, of getting you something, we know exactly what to get you so you can fortify that. All right, enough about what you wear uh, and what you don't wear. You ready to uh, light this candle, get this thing going? Yep. All right. As always, we start the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. The Boca River Copa Libertadores final descended into chaos this past weekend as River fans broke windows of Boca's team bus and then the ensuing tear gas left players vomiting and sick. The game has been postponed. The irony is that these combustible cauldrons of soccer culture are responsible for fostering, hardening, and motivating some of the best players in the world. Acts of violence and aggression are often cited when touting the best rivalries and supporters in the world. This is serious. This is authentic. This is everything the U.S. isn't as a soccer culture. Now, we'll condemn it. And as misguided romanticism and the conflating of violence with passion, it should be condemned. But it's an undeniable element of what differentiates soccer from other sports. In many parts of the world, a threat of violence and danger has always been woven into the fabric of the game. It's often used to illustrate how soccer is more than a game, something beyond traditional sports. 
And certainly, it separates it from traditional U.S. sports that are often cited and criticized for being artificial, plastic, family fair, and nothing more than entertainment. The flares, the smoke, the security, the dogs, the moats, the projectiles, and yes, the violence is always bubbling right under the surface. That's authentic. And that's the rub. We value players that are fueled by a fire that comes from an inherent pressure and fear of failure. And that comes from being immersed in a sports culture with an undeniable undercurrent and history of fanatical and violent behavior. Take it away, and yeah, you have a safer, kinder, and gentler sport and culture. But take it away, and you may diminish the fundamental experience and environment that is shaped, defined, and fortified many great players and soccer cultures of the world. All right, David Mossy. First, before I get your opinion on my State of the Union, I just want to, I guess, repeat and clarify because I can feel people right now after hearing that their fingers on their keyboards screaming and yelling and accusing me of condoning violence or looking at violence as a necessity going forward. Absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying. So I hope I articulated it well and that you understand where I'm coming from. If you do, or even if you don't for that matter, what are your thoughts on what I said? Well, hats off to our good friends at Fox Deportes because in the history of television, nobody has ever done more (laughs) pregame coverage without an actual game. But yeah, no, I actually tend to agree with you. Let me preface this by saying I know uh, Europeans aren't perfect and there are incidents in Europe as well. We did a Champions League game last season when the Liverpool fans attacked the Man City bus. But I'm going to talk about this more in the context of South American football because given the fact that the quality isn't as good as it is in Europe, South American football is now sold almost entirely on the basis of the passion and intensity of the fans. All the buildup to this Boca River final has been about the fans and the pageantry surrounding it. But the thing people need to understand is you take that video that everybody loved of Boca fans packing La Bombonera for a training session, and then you take what happened Saturday, and you can't have one without the other. I wish you could. You ought to be able to in a perfect world, but there are years and years of empirical evidence that you can't. If you're going to have that level of passion, invariably it's going to spill over into some negative stuff. So that's why when I did a Mossy Makes the Case about this a few weeks ago, I said be careful about glorifying and celebrating the quote-unquote passion of South American football because this is kind of part of that package too. Well, isn't it, isn't it the dirty little secret that when we talk about passion, and look, I, I, I join everybody that online, offline has condemned this and said that all the steps need to be taken, and they do need to be taken to try to eradicate that. But if and when you, you do succeed in eradicating it, all the different things that we've talked about, and, and it's amazing because over the years I've talked to a lot of Argentinians actually that have come to Major League Soccer, and I ask them why. I want to know what, what they're doing. And yes, some of them look at it as a stepping stone to something bigger, a la going to Europe. But there's also an element of, uh, some of the, sometimes the first thing they say is, uh, I, am, I am for the first time calm and serene and comfortable, me and my family. And at times they'll say, I'm safe. All these different things. We talk about the, the threat of kidnapping. We talk about players not being allowed to leave their, leave their house after a poor performance or a loss and that kind of stuff. We talk about fans outside of the hotel. Now, some of it, some of it is good and some of it is, is benign, but some of it is part of what this culture is about. And I submit to you that some of these players that have risen above not just the, the horrible things that we're talking about, but also many of them coming from nothing and in these environments. Because the first thing that when I, I often said uh, to people, sometimes I'll say, you know what? It's just sports. It's just soccer. And invariably, people will, will come back with, it's not just soccer. And this is why. It's a religion. And it's, it's serious. It's so serious that this person was killed and this type of fan uprising happened. And this, this scenario, this violent scenario happened. They use it as an example to to justify how passionate the fan base and the culture is, and they use it to juxtapose with what we don't have here in the United States. Well, if that's the case, and that is what has produced these types of players, what if it's not there? What if all the Argentinian players now grow up in a society where none of that exists? 
Everybody is kumbaya. It doesn't matter whether you play well. It doesn't matter whether your team wins. Good job. Good work. You had a really good effort. They come out. They can go to the bank. They can go walk around. Nobody's yelling at them. Nobody's outside their hotel. They're certainly not in the threat of, uh, and not, look, I'm not saying that it's good to have the threat of kidnapping as something <laughs> as part of your culture. I'm not saying it. But the reality is that these are some of the things that they're having to go through and they rise above it. And maybe it's why when they finally do get to a situation where they're playing at a higher level, uh, they have that in their basket. They have that in their past and they're able to use it to great effect to appreciate where they are and in many ways appreciate it more than others. So I'm just saying right now when we talk about this, we can condemn it as we as we should, but recognize that this is the culture that has been fostered and by the way, celebrated. What's the first thing when CNN or Fox for that matter, or any, any TV station when they talk about soccer, they're not necessarily talking about the scores. They're talking about the violence and if there's fire and if there's all these, all these different things and they're horrible and they should be condemned, but that's what people associate and that's what people equate with this incredible passion that we have. And that, that's, that's a problem. Yeah, the, the president of Conmebol, Alejandro Dominguez, he's been talking a lot about the Libertadores in relation to the Champions League and contrasting the two. And he's uh, described the Champions League as PlayStation soccer. He said it's precise, but it's shallow. And here's what he said on Friday, the day before all this uh, stuff happened. Talking about the Champions League, he said, it is football on TV. It is not the way we live it here. The way the fans support their teams, the passion they bring, it is life. And this is him saying that the day before. You understand what he's talking sure. about, but it, it just didn't age well. But no, I mean, to, to your point you made, I think it's interesting. There are conversations now about that environment forging great players. There are conversations now in South America that it might have crossed the line. And one of the reasons, it's not the only one, that you're seeing South American starlets go to Europe younger and younger, 18, 19 years old, is that they don't feel like it's a good environment anymore to develop, that there's too much tension, too much pressure to win. And so I think that's something uh, they have to take a but, look at too. But if w would they be the same player if that environment and that, that culture didn't exist and they started just playing in, in, in the nice culture and the... Uh, the barnification, if you will, as, as, as far as the, the president of, of, uh, <laughs> down there would look at the barnification type of culture that exists. And by the way, it's not as if it's all kumbaya when they right, go over right, to, right. to Europe. There's plenty of, uh, of situations and horrible situations that go, go on over there. I wonder if there's a happy medium there where you can sacrifice a little bit of the passion but still have it be passionate enough and have people care but not cross the line. I mean, we did the Dortmund-Bayern game a couple of weeks ago. That was a great atmosphere, but I never felt like if you were a Bayern fan in that stadium, you feared for your life. You know, Likewise, Ohio State-Michigan this weekend. I didn't feel like if you were a Michigan fan in that stadium, you feared for your life. So I wonder if there is sort of a happy medium, a sweet spot there you can, you can find where you can sacrifice some of the okay, passion. But, all right, so, and, and, so then where do you draw the line? If a player, whether it's a Michigan Wolverine or, or anybody <laughs> else, were to go out during the week and go shopping, and he's with his significant other and maybe with the family or something like that, and someone starts screaming at him at the bank or at the uh, supermarket for failing to give his all and or throwing <laughs> a horrible pass or uh, you know making a horrible save or not finishing a goal and stuff like that, is that is that legitimate? You're right. It's a very like nebulous line there of where is it good passion and where does it cross the line and have sort of a detrimental. And, and does effect. that person then go home and? Is that person made better by that type of pressure that I think we can both make an argument, probably on both sides, uh, right. that, it, that that's inappropriate type of behavior? So I, I, like I said, I don't want to see something like this. And I do think that they are taking it very, very seriously, so much so there's even talk of having this be part of a game that's played completely out of Argentina uh, going forward, which, which would be, I think, the ultimate type of decision because this whole this whole final was built on the fact that there's two Argentinian teams playing in Argentina at two historic venues. Well, there's even been talk Boca want uh, River to forfeit uh, this second leg and they and Listen, I'm, uh, I'm generally not in favor of that, a team having to forfeit a match because of the behavior of their fans. Booker pointing to, in 2015, they faced River and the Libertadores, and they had to forfeit a match because of their crowd behavior. Now, that occurred inside the stadium. This occurred outside the stadium. Some people think there's a distinction to be made there. In some cases, it's appropriate for a team to forfeit a match, but generally I'm against it, and I am definitely against it here. I do think that rose to the level that under normal circumstances, we'd be talking about the second leg being played in an empty stadium, but Comnabell clearly 
don't want to do that here because as we talked about, the whole appeal of this final is the atmosphere and the excitement around it, the fans. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do. They're, we're taping this on Monday. There's a meeting tomorrow in Asuncion to determine when and where this uh, second leg is going to be played. It can't be this upcoming weekend because the G20 Summit is going on in Buenos Aires, and so there wouldn't be enough security. So it presumably it would be the following weekend, the weekend of December 8th and 9th. And as you mentioned, there have been two interesting suggestions out there. One is of playing it in a neutral venue in South America, which, bear in mind, this was already going to be the last two-legged home and away final. Next year, they're moving to a one-off neutral venue. And there have been debates about that. Some people think it's going to make for a sterile environment. Other people think, no, it's great because you're going to have both sets of fans. And so we might get a test case for that a year in advance of what that's going to look wow. like. The other suggestion made by Tim Vickery, actually, was that uh, it's going to be pretty close to the w- Club World Cup. So why not play the second leg in the United Arab Emirates? And then the team w- that wins is already there. They just stay and contest the Club <laughs> World Cup, which, I mean, that would just be totally bizarre. But we'll see what happens. Well, look, I think you can come down to the fact that uh, I'm just saying be, be careful what you wish for and be careful what you champion. Because when you are champion, championing these types of environments and these types of soccer cultures, and you're, they're, you're using them as examples and juxtapositions with what the United States soccer culture isn't. And let's be fair, the United States sports culture isn't and has been. And by the way, I hope is never. Just recognize what you are championing and understand how it may have contributed to these players and to this culture that we hold up on a pedestal. And I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. And that's why it's so difficult at at different times. Other than I hope that this doesn't happen again, because you don't want players that are, yes, playing a sport. And as much as I love it and as much as I have a passion for it, and we can argue about where that passion lies on the scale of, of passion, I recognize that it is just a sport and we make a living in this sport and it's wonderful and it has fed us and hopefully it continues to feed us, but it is just a sport and it is just soccer and it's okay to say that. And when you say that, it doesn't mean that you have any less passion than somebody than somebody else. Uh, we look forward to finding out what this ultimately uh, comes down to because after you get past all of this stuff, there's a, there's a game to be played, a good game to be played with something on the line between uh, two good teams. I, I bought in, and in the past I wouldn't have bought in because of the unique aspect of the two Argentinian teams here. But this is not a good look for either of these teams. It's not a good look for Copa Libertadores. It's not a good look for Comnebol. And it's certainly not a good look for Argentinian soccer going forward. And we'll see where this all flushes out to. All right, moving on. Hey, guys, it's Alexi Lalas, and more of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga to Copa Libertadores, Major League Soccer, International Friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So, check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case, uh, that moment in the pod when David Mossy gets something off his chest. What are you talking about this week, Mossy? My case is that parody is making a comeback, and it's happening at just the right time. Parody with a T, not a D, right? Correct. Okay, got it. Over the past few years, there have been plenty of rumblings about a European Super League, and while many people object to the idea out of principle, very few would dispute the premise that European leagues have become top-heavy and predictable, and that certain clubs seem to tower over the competition. In the last two weeks, thanks to football leagues, we obtained confirmation that some of these big European clubs did in fact meet to discuss the formation of a Super League. But the irony is that this revelation occurred at a time when we're starting to see some real parity. Two leagues in particular are worth highlighting. We cover the Bundesliga, and 12 rounds in, it is looking increasingly plausible that somebody other than Bayern Munich is going to win it. Dortmund are in first place, Gladbach are second, Frankfurt and Leipzig are also ahead of Bayern and thinking maybe they have a chance. Bayern are in fifth place, nine points off the top. And La Liga is absolutely bonkers this season. 13 rounds in, Sevilla are in first place. You have several clubs bunched together at the top. Alaves are fourth right now, ahead of Real Madrid and two points behind Barcelona. Is this sustainable until the end of the season? I'm not sure. And even if it is, is it just a one-season blip and the big boys will reassert themselves in the following campaign? Perhaps. But for the time being, I think it's a good thing, not just to quell this talk of a Super League, but I think it's healthy for the game that Sevilla fans are sitting around right now talking about the prospect of winning La Liga. Gladbach fans are entertaining the possibility of winning the Bundesliga. So I'm glad that we have some parity and unpredictability back in the European 
club game. I, I, I am glad, too. Uh, it's something that we have lamented and criticized the leagues about. And look, the only way that you're really going to have a sustained and consistent level of parity in those leagues is to have some sort of salary cap, notwithstanding the aberration, the anomaly that was Leicester, for example. But we know that that was that blip that went up and down. Do you think right now that this is sustainable? Because I, I question whether it is sustainable. And I know the league has changed with Cristiano leaving and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I think in the long term, when we're talking here in June of next year, I, I think it's hard for some of, these, some of these clubs to sustain it over all the craziness that happens over winter and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that this is sustainable? And if so, which, which leagues, I guess, do you think it's sustainable in? I agree. I question whether it's sustainable, certainly over multiple seasons, because when a team emerges and does surprisingly well, uh, the big boys start to pick off yep. uh, their players. And so it makes it very hard to sustain. It's interesting. In Spain, they point to the fact they were very sensitive about this whole two-team league thing. And so they took a page out of the Premier League and they changed the way the television money is distributed. Yep. They made it more equitable. So they point to that as the reason for what we're seeing this season. In fact, the La Liga president, Javier Tebas, has been doing like a victory dance this season and pointing to the table and saying, you see, I saw the problem, but uh, you know, as we said, let, let's wait and see if it's really sustainable. The other theory is the Ryan O'Hanlon one. He's a writer for The Ringer. He wrote an article a few weeks ago saying that the Premier League has gobbled up all the top managers, and so some of these big clubs and other leagues are kind of stuck with ordinary managers right now, and maybe that's helping level the playing field. I mean, you said on TV this weekend that you still see Bayern winning the Bundesliga. Yeah. Is that because you're assuming they're going to make a change yes. and somebody's going to come in and give them a spark, or you think with Nico Kovac on the bench the whole season they, they could win the well, Bundesliga? Well, I don't think he's going to be on the bench the whole season. So. Right. I, I think that they are, to borrow a phrase from our American past, they're too big to fail. And failing for them is not, at the very least, challenging. Nine points, That's and they didn't look good again this, this week. I think they have to make some changes, if nothing else, for optics uh, in, in January. Uh, but I do think that they should go out and they should get some additional players. And I know uh, Alfonso Davis is is the uh, <laughs> is the the man to bring them, or you know the uh, young young man to bring them into the uh, into the 2019 situation. Uh, we all know that when it really comes to if you want a league with parity, you go to MLS, and that is borne out in the amount of teams that have won. I mean, even this year we have a potential of an expansion team been in existence two years, uh, and we're going to talk more about that later on in the show of winning uh, winning MLS Cup. So if you want parity, but that's manufactured. That parity is manufactured, and it's by design in terms of the single entity structure, but also, as I said before, in the restrictions. Would you be in favor going forward? And I know financial fair play is, is one type of restriction, and there's certainly some restrictions out there, but it's not even close to the level of what MLS, for example, has in place. Would you be in favor in some of these leagues actually putting those types of restrictions? Or the other part is people actually like having these things that are too big to fail and like having teams that as many people hate as love, these super clubs, these elite clubs that don't do spend as much as anybody else. Yeah, it's funny. We talked recently about MLS and you asked me what's the one thing I don't like about it. And I said there was at times too much parity yep. and they leveled out the playing field too much. So no, I like having the big boys. So I, I wouldn't put like a strict salary cap on it. I just think you, you can if you actually created financial fair play rules with some teeth to them and, and distributed the television money equitably, you can create a scenario where you kind of have a happy medium of you still have some clubs that invariably are going to have more money than others, but it's not like such a crazy discrepancy. So uh, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't be in favor of like an MLS style salary cap, but you know I think there are little things you can do to try mm, to... I would. I would yeah. because, be, because I feel that it would separate the men and women from the boys and the girls. I feel that then we would actually see who the good coaches are. <laughs> then we would actually see who the good front office folks are. Then we would actually see who the good players are. And I think it would be incredibly interesting and different. It'll never happen, but I would love to see it. And I'm and look, I'm not I'm not saying that I don't I don't like these huge super clubs. I'm I look I <laughs> I've been talking about super clubs for as long as I can remember. Uh, I love them. But when it comes to the actual competition, I love the parity that exists in MLS. I love the fact that it is the most unpredictable league in the world. And if I find the man and woman that can 
act, you know, accurately and consistently predict it, I'm bringing he or she to Vegas immediately because <laughs> we will definitely win some money because it's so difficult to do. All right, anything else uh, in terms uh, of your case? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. It's interesting, this eternal debate between club football and international football. And after this World Cup, a lot of people pointed to the fact that in the international game, parity seemed to be growing. And you look at the last major tournaments and Euro 2016 and Wales and Iceland and then this World Cup, Germany getting knocked out in the group stage and Croatia getting to the final. And they contrasted that with the club game where it seems, seems to be very top heavy. And so it's interesting that that narrative maybe has to be rethought a little bit now. But, but is, is there is there really that parity when it comes to international? Is, is Croatia just a you know, for example, a, a Bulgaria from 1994. Right. Is is Iceland a, you know, I, I know that they were able to parlay their uh, European success into the, the World Cup success, but what if they what if they don't qualify next time around? Uh, what if what if Germany wins the World Cup next <laughs> next yeah. year, uh, next uh, next World Cup, which is which certainly can happen. Are you, are you do you really think that there is this leveling, leveling process when it comes to the uh, international game? I think more so than in the club game, precisely because uh, these clubs with all this money are now buying players from like all over the world. So some of these players from these so-called unfashionable countries are now getting the experience of sure. playing high-level sure. club football and surrounded by better talent. And so that's in turn making MLS is doing that better. for CONCACAF. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's something to it. Uh, the other thing, I know we're going to talk about the Champions League in a bit. I hope this is sustainable until the end of the season because I hate when we get to the spring and there are teams that have already put their domestic league to bed mm -hmm. and can just focus entirely on the Champions League. I enjoy the yin-yang of like having a big game on the weekend and then also having a big Champions League game three days later and how do you juggle your, your, your squad and all that. And so we could be headed for that this season, which will make it even more fun. Well, since we're not going to get that type of manufactured parity, then I think it's fair and valid to judge these super clubs that do spend more than anybody else and do have all of the talent and to hold them I guess accountable, I mean, sports once again, to hold them accountable for being able to operate on two fronts and being able to do it successfully. So that's, I, I love seeing that. Like you said, I love seeing when teams are playing midweek and then playing on the weekend and fighting for uh, a domestic title on the weekend, but then also fighting for that uh, European title during the week. And I hope, I hope we have more of those teams this year because those are fun teams to watch under that type of pressure. There we go. We're back to pressure and culture again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, as the world turns. All right. Anything else, uh, Mossy? That is it. All right. Moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi when you send in your comments and uh, questions on the uh, old uh, social media machine, all those different platforms, using the hashtag Ask Alexi. What do the folks want to know this week, Mossy? All right. First up, at Brantley Pollock. Would you prefer the U.S. men's national team bringing in, parentheses, if they could, a European manager like Conti Zidane or Lopetegui, who is a complete outsider to bring in new ideas, or would you rather they stay within the U.S. soccer slash MLS community, parentheses, as it seems they're doing? Mm. Okay, so first off, new ideas are not simply something that someone from the outside, and when we say the outside, we're, we're normally talking about a foreign coach. Just because somebody is, quote unquote, a domestic coach in that they coach domestically or they grew up domestically or they played here domestically, doesn't mean that he or she can't have ideas that haven't been thought about before and can't, uh, can't implement them. I don't, I don't care, ultimately, who the coach is, I just want that coach to have a plan. And we've talked about this time and time again. So whether it's, you, you mentioned who, uh, who did Brantley mentioned uh, Conte, Zidane, Lopetegui, those types of coaches. I'm fine with all of those, but where I come at it from a different perspective is I look at those names, I put them on the same level as other coaches. And I know that immediately sets people off when I say, look, I'm okay if somebody in a powerful position and somebody that's been put in charge to make decisions says that I think Greg Berhalter is better than if I had to sign Zinedine Zidane. It's okay. It's okay to say that. All right. We can argue about it and you may agree or, or, or disagree, but ultimately that's the way that I look at all coaches. And so I don't, first off, I don't differentiate between foreign and and domestic and all that kind of stuff. I do recognize that having an understanding, and whether that's a Greg Berhalter, an understanding from having played in Major League Soccer, from having grown up in the United States, uh, from having coached in the United States, or it's someone like an Oscar Pereja, who came to the United States to play in Major League Soccer, has coached in Major League Soccer. So where you were born, where you grew up, all that kind of stuff isn't of consequence to me. An understanding and a respect of the culture and what the history is, I think that that is important. I think that that does serve you well uh, going forward. And, I, and I, I want whoever's in charge to have that understanding and have that respect. 
I have to say, the more I think about this, I, I think I would have definitely offered the job to Tata Martino. Okay, why? Uh, I think he, you know, he's, first of all, I mean, he's lived in this country for a couple of years. I have to think he speaks some English, and national team coaches have a lot of time on their hands. Sure. If he doesn't speak it well enough on day one, you could give him a tutor, and in a few months, perhaps, he could get to a point. And I just think he checks off all the boxes. He has, like, the sexy stuff on his resume, Argentina, Barcelona. Plus, he did very well with Paraguay. It took them to the World Cup quarterfinals. You could argue in terms of level of talent, that's, like, the most analogous thing to coaching sure. the U.S. And he also, by coaching in MLS, kind of understands the American player, the American culture, some. So I think he kind of checked off all the boxes. And, and you know, and then the fact that Mexico goes and hires him, I, I don't yeah, know. I, but I think come that, on, that shouldn't be a reason to hire someone because Mexico wants to nah, hire but, him. But, okay. And, and I, look, I have no problem. If you want to hire Tata Martino, fine. But what I'm saying is if Ernie Stewart, Carlos Cordero, the powers that be over there, don't believe that Tata Martino is right, for whatever reason, they can have a million different reasons, as whether it's he doesn't speak English or anything like that. That that's okay to me. I, I that, that that once again they are put in those positions to make those uh, to make those decisions. Ultimately, there's going to be someone with a beating heart, a human being that is going to be in in charge of getting this team back to the World Cup and getting this team heading in the right direction and getting this team winning. And if it happens, great. If it doesn't. They will fire that coach, and the people that made that hire will come under criticism and maybe uh, maybe moved on for not hiring the right person. And look, Tata's done great, and if uh, by all indications he's he's heading to El Tri, and we'll talk later on about the about MLS, but certainly what he has done in terms of solidifying that Atlanta United brand and equating it with success, equating it with a interesting and sexy type of style. I don't think you can put a price on that. And they're going to be hard pressed when he leaves to try to replicate that because he is a true original. All right. Next up at Nicholas L. Martin. Wouldn't you agree that Austin will be home to the most despised club when it joins MLS? Should we <laughs> Austinites embrace that or work to change attitudes? You Austinites should, first off, as you rightly have pointed out, expect to be despised, not just by Columbus. That's a no-brainer. But you're also going to be despised by others that feel that you got your team, uh, it was ill-gotten gains, uh, that it was by sleight of hand, shall we say. I, I say you embrace it. I say you own it, maybe because I <laughs> I often embrace the uh, the criticism slash uh, hate that uh, seems to at times uh, cascade down upon me. I invite it. I sometimes go out of my way to uh, be hit by it. But I think that what, regardless of what team it is, and in this case it's a team from Austin, your identity is something that while you can manufacture it a little bit, it's got to be organic, and it's got to come from someplace. And the history and the convoluted history, and at times the, uh, the difficult and the ugly history that is going to birth this team, I think you can embrace it. I think you can say, look, we, we came from very difficult and challenging and, yes, ugly circumstances, and we're going to own it. We're going to put it on our sleeve, if you will. So yeah, I think you, uh, I think you embrace it, you expect it, like you, like you said, uh, and you use it as fuel to show that while there's people that hate you out there, you're going to put on a great product on the field, and while there are people that will want you to fail, and people are going to want you to fail because of how this all went down, people are gonna want you to fail on the field, and people are gonna want you to fail off the field as a market. I think you embrace that, you use it as fuel to become the best damn MLS market out there. You're going to come up against some real stiff competition, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Seattle, whether it's uh, other places. But when you start showing up in masses, when you start owning that brand, when you start being viewed not just internally but externally as a true soccer city and a soccer community and, yes, an authentic soccer culture, then... Then, then you're good. You'll still be hated, but I think that there will be a begrudging respect, and that's maybe the most that you can hope for. At Paugba, what current players have the potential to become good managers? Oh, my goodness. This is, this is always so difficult. Um, it's the same way with television. You will come across people and players that you say, gosh, that, that guy or that girl is, is really good in front of a camera, and they, you know, they give great quote. And they just seem really, really comfortable. And invariably, many of them will then uh, be pushed 
uh, or want to go or be championed by people behind the scenes, and then you get them in front of a camera and that red light turns on in a circumstance where they're actually being asked to analyze or broadcast, and that person seems to go away. So it's, I think it's very, very difficult to pick someone from a TV perspective. I also think it's very, very t- difficult to pick a coach. For example, uh, when I was playing with someone like Mike Pecky, never in my wildest dreams did I think that Mike Pecky would not only be a coach, but be a good coach be a coach of uh, be a coach of multiple teams. Be a coach responsible for uh, managing someone like Thierry Henry and doing it in a in a in a pretty good way. So that's a long way of saying. It. I think it's impossible to predict. So so for example, a lot of people point to someone like Michael Bradley. Oh, he's going to be a coach. Well, he, obviously he comes from a line of coaching, uh, so it's in his blood. He thinks about the game uh, in a way. Uh, and oftentimes what we'll do is we'll see a, a player think about it and talk about it really uh, carefully and concisely and analytically, and we'll equate that with being a good coach. I think that if, even if Bob Bradley was here, he would say that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good coach. So sometimes it's not about all the X's and O's. It's not about how, how hard you think of it. And that's not a knock on Michael Bradley. He might be a very, very good coach. I think a lot of people right now look to Michael Bradley. Uh, when I go and I sit down with someone like Will Trapp, I think that this guy – thinks about the game in an interesting way. I don't know if he has any desire to be on television or to be a coach. So that's a long way of saying, like I said, I don't think you can identify it. And I haven't identified anybody out there right now that pops to mind that should that should be a coach. And that's that's a good thing. I love the fact that there are strange people that we never fathomed could be successful as coaches when we saw them in their playing form that somehow transform and somehow find this this life that either we didn't see it, and maybe they didn't even they didn't even even see it, because it is a very very different way of going about your business. It's a very very different way of thinking about the game, and great players or even okay players sometimes have a real hard time making that transition. Yeah, an example and. In- basketball, what you're saying is Phil Jackson's old teammates with the Knicks all say that uh, in their wildest dreams, they would not have predicted that right. <laughs> he would turn right. out to be a coach. So you never know. That is it. That is it. All right. Thank you so much. As always, hit us up on Twitter and Facebook and Periscope and all the different things out there. You know, we're, we, you can find the State of the Union all over the place, by the way, on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and all the different things out there. But uh, hit, use that hashtag Ask Alexi and uh, we will get to your questions and comments in future episodes of the State of the Union. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our Back Three when we look at some big stories, games, moments. Uh, Mossy, what are we looking at this week? All right, first up, uh, the time has come for the U.S. men and women to crown Players of the Year. Ooh. Five nominees for each award. Let's take the men first. Uh, the nominees are Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, Matt Miazga, Zach Steffen, and Will Trapp. Oof. Who would be your pick? Slim Pickens. Man, oh, man. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, and, and I say that because it's not that these guys aren't good players or, or will be good players going forward, but it's just it's in the context of this dark year that we have had. So I'm reticent to even pick one. But if I had to pick one, man. Well, I think Zach Steffen has a case for it. Weston McKinney it gets hurt a lot. He seems to be hurt a lot. <laughs> they come in and out. Uh, although Zach Steffen obviously was hurt in this uh, this past international break. Yeah, I'll say I'll say Zach Steffen. I think he has come in and made that position his. You know, I, I think Brad Gazan will probably have something to say about it, but I do think that he is the um, he is the number one right now. So I, I could go with him. I know Will Trapp has not only captained the team, but played a lot of minutes this past year. I love Will Trapp as a person and as a player, but I think he is limited as a player. And I think the limitation means that he will not get to the point from the international perspective that we need a captain and a player playing in that position. I think I, I fear that Will Trapp is a version of Michael Bradley that is not as good as Michael Bradley. And we all know Michael Bradley takes plenty of criticism too. So I think that could be problematic going forward if Will Trapp is your captain uh, and your guy in that midfield that is playing game in and game out. All right, so what else? Uh, so that's men. So the women, the nominees are Julie Ertz, mm-hmm. Tobin Heath, Alex Morgan, mm-hmm. Megan Rapino, and Lindsey Horan. 
I think Lindsey Horan has a shot. I think a lot of this also, our our perception of these players will change come next summer. So, for example, Julie Ertz, who was a huge star when the women's team won the World Cup four years ago, but she was a center back. She's moved into this defensive midfield position, and she is bossing and owning that midfield. So I could definitely vote for her. Tobin Heath is healthy and doing all the tricks, but I think she's really become efficient in the tricks that she does do, but she, I just love watching her. Alex Morgan is on a, a torrid pace now in terms of scoring, and it is all her. There's no Abby Wambach waiting in the wings or anything like that. Uh, and right now, the way it looks, Carly Lloyd might not even start for this national team. Uh, Megan Rapino on that other side. I mean, that's that trio up top of Morgan, Rapino, and uh, Tobin Heath that uh, I think are going to be do, do a lot of damage next summer in a good way. And then Lindsay Horan, who has just come on and She's an automatic starter right now, once again, in that midfield. But if I had to vote for someone, I'm okay with Alex Morgan right now. I mean, it, it is all flowing through her as a goal scorer, and I think that she's going to be very, very important going forward in terms of scoring that goals and being that person up top. And I think she's taken on a real responsibility over the last year of, of being that number one person up top. So I'll go with her. But like, like I said, I think Julie Ertz is going to be the most important player for this national team come next summer in that midfield. Next up, MLS Cup playoffs. The conference finals got underway this past weekend. Atlanta with a commanding win over the Red Bulls. And then Portland and Sporting KC played to a scoreless draw. What were your overall impressions? All right, so uh, so who feels more comfortable? I would think certainly that Sporting KC right now. They didn't get an away goal, but I think that they will feel comfortable and confident coming back to Sporting Kansas City this Thursday. Portland was okay. It wasn't a great game. The other game I thought was a much better game, and not just because there were goals, but because there was so much more to talk about when it comes to Atlanta and the Red Bulls. Chris Armas is going to take a lot of heat, as he should. And this gets back to a, a, a bigger question of when you have teams, and they're few and far between. Everyone talks about philosophy and style of play and blah, 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 blah. But rarely do you actually see teams that employ it, that own it, that live it and love it each and every time they go on the field. And Red Bulls is one of the, are, are and have been for a number of years one of those unique teams. We talk about their press, their high press. They want to put people under pressure in areas, danger areas, in that attacking third field, win the ball, and then go straight to goal. That is who they are. They make no apologies for it, nor should they, because it has led them to a historic amount of points this year. And yet, in the most important game of the season, playing against Atlanta, the team that, by the way, they pipped right at the end to get that supporter's shield and have owned all season, they went against type. They did not press. And it was, I was disappointed. I was, I was sad because if in the most important moment of your season, you abandon your principles, and I know I'm being a little romantic here, then they're really not principles at all. And that's what was disappointing. And I'm sure that Chris Armas has a, a, a reason that we will find out. But ultimately, you abandon your principles in the most important game against a very, very good opponent playing away. And what happened? You lost. You didn't just lose. You lost 3 nothing. And that third goal is inexcusable. 2 nothing sucks, but you can, you can get away with that. 3 nothing. it's going to take... By the way, nobody, no team has ever come back in the second leg. So it's going to take a historic type of performance from the Red Bulls to try to rectify this situation. But it's not just Chris Armas. Obviously, he's the leader, and he's going to take a lot of the heat. But this team got it all wrong in terms of, at the most important moment, as I said, abandoning their principles. And that, to me, that saddens me. It doesn't anger me. It just saddens me because there are so few teams in the world, not just in MLS, in the world that actually have a style of play and live it. And the Red Bulls, at least until last night in Atlanta, were one of those teams. All right, what else? All right, we'll end on this. The UEFA Champions League returns this week, match day five. There are three games I want to highlight. We'll take them uh, one by one. To me, the biggest story in the Champions League is the prospect of PSG going out in the group stage. And if they were to lose to Liverpool at home and Napoli were to beat Red Star, PSG would be out. Oof. Bear in mind, they're sweating on the fitness of both Mbappe and and Neymar. And let me go there first. I don't want to every week keep ranting about this whole club versus country thing. But And I know nobody's ever going to feel sorry for PSG, but the idea that they have this crucial make or break 
season-defining game against Liverpool, and they might not have either Neymar or Mbappe available because both got injured on international duty. And to add insult to injury, they both got hurt in friendlies. But even if Mbappe had gotten hurt in a UEFA Nations League match, I would have felt the same way. I just feel like this club-country dynamic is just screwed up right now. The club's pay these players' salaries, and for the majority of the year, that needs to be their sole focus. I feel like there's too much international football right now. Every few weeks, it seems like there's an international break, and these players are playing all these games, and I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but that would really upset me if I was a club paying these massive salaries, and the biggest game of the season rolls around, and I can't have my best player because he got hurt in a, in a friendly a week before. I mean, does so, that... Okay, so once again, it's, it's easy for us to complain and criticize <laughs> and stuff like that, so what's the answer? You, you just don't want international soccer. Yeah, I'd like uh, <laughs> I'd like for the majority of the time the focus to be solely on the clubs and international football is this thing that sort of complements club football. You can still have these. What big do you mean it complements it? Either way, even if these, he plays one minute, he can get hurt. You can still so have these what, big what, tournaments in the summer and players can still represent their country in World Cups and Olympics and such. But man, do we need UEFA Nations League and friendlies and these drawn out qualifications? I, I don't know. I don't have a good plan to simplify it, but I just think it needs simplifying. <laughs> um, but so uh, hopefully, it sounds like the latest is uh, Tuchel's optimism about both, but the latest reports I've read is that Neymar is like 50-50. Mbappe, there's a good chance he'll play, so uh, that should be a great game. PSG. Do you think they get through? You think PSG gets through? Uh, no, I think they're going to get knocked out. Which Talk what a story about a disaster. Be, yeah. And then Tottenham hosts Inter Milan, and Tottenham have to win to stay alive. A right. draw or loss to Inter at Wembley. And well, they have they to be buoyed right now after what happened over the weekend. Great result over the weekend. Who they beat? Uh, I know they won. Who they uh, beat? Yeah, that was... Uh, Alex Dowd's Chelsea. <laughs> I know. Um, I know. We talked earlier Inter, before we came on Inter uh, hammered like Frosinone, and they, they rested a lot of their guys, Icardi, Perisic, so they'll be fresh, but but Tottenham have this great momentum now. Yeah, and listen, uh, even if Tottenham win this game, then they'd be level on points with Inter. The scoreline will dictate which team has the head-to-head advantage. Inter beat them 2-1 at the San Siro match they won. Mm. But then, bear in mind, Tottenham still have to go to Barcelona match day six, Inter host PSV. So it's still a tall order for Tottenham to get through, but, but certainly they need a win uh, – this week to, to have any chance otherwise they're eliminated so again you know that yeah but even if tottenham doesn't get through they beat chelsea so they can just rest <laughs> on that <laughs> and then i just want to end on this uh, i tweeted about it and i want to say it here roma host real madrid and real madrid i just thought it was so comical listen there wasn't a candidate out there that the conti thing fell apart and they had to make a decision on solari uh, la liga regulations are such that you can't have that interim tag right. on and so it made sense to keep him until the end of the season but they could have framed it differently they could have said we're oh, keeping him until the end of the season but he's effectively an interim guy we'll evaluate him we'll make a decision in the summer and nobody would have begrudged that but instead they gave him a contract until 2021 they made this big show about the fact that he earns the job permanently after four games beating third tier Melilla in the Copa del Rey via the lead Victoria Pilsen and Celta Vigo and the newspapers in Madrid for days were filled with stories about this renaissance under uh, Solari, how he's orchestrated this great turnaround, and then they go and lose 3-0 to Ibar this past weekend, and, and now they have to go away to Roma, who, by the way, are struggling as well, and Di Francesco's on the hot seat, but still, if they lose here, Real Madrid are right back to the where with Lopetegui and in crisis. Wow. And, <laughs> it's just, Mossy. And listen, Solari Mossy. may well... Hashtag Solari out no, 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 for Mossy. No, no, no. Oh, come may on. Well, wow. May well turn out to be a very good manager. I, mean, I guess my point is it's too early to tell one way or the other, and they tried to act like after four games he had already proven something, which... Uh, to me, the whole thing was a major stretch. Well, I mean, give it a, give it a name. Every coach is is hired to be fired, so I mean, they could certainly fire Solari uh, later on. But they had to obviously make it uh, make it. Pro- <laughs> Speaking of, of interim managers, I was thinking about this the other day, and we were talking earlier about Ernie Stewart and Carlos Codero and the and the leadership and the criticism that you know even the the, the newest version of the United States Soccer Federation is getting. I think that this is what should happen. I want U.S. soccer given what has happened over this last year, to take away the interim tag of Dave Sarakin in all of the historical books and lines and numbers so that he, in in history, will always be the head coach from, what is it, November 2017 until November 2018. I think that that would be a level of respect that he deserves. Uh, because I think that there's, uh, I, I hear some people out there talking uh, in a way that I don't think that Dave Sarakin deserves uh, in terms of what his prowess is and his ability is as a coach. We all, I'm not crying for Dave Sarakin because he got a, a whole year to coach the national team and that's wonderful on the, res, uh, on the resume. And I think he did do some, uh, some good things, but I, I'm going to try to get that 
happened. I'm going to see if there's a groundswell of support to have Dave Sarakin as the head coach in that whoever's coming in, if it's Greg Berhalter, he's just the new head coach, all right? And he's not taking over from any type of interim coach right now. Maybe we would have to fire Dave in order to do that, right? We could probably we could probably do that. We'll see if that <laughs> we'll see if that happens. All right, uh, we're looking forward anyway to Champions League uh, this week with our friends over there and uh, the Turner. Right? Is that what the, is that what it's on and all that? Uh, all right. So we will check that out. Anything else when it comes to the back three, Mossy? Uh, no. All right. We've come to the end of our show uh, once again. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one big thing uh, from today's podcast. And obviously, it goes back to the uh, State of the Union and the things that we were talking about. We have all a passion for the game. We also all have a different definition for what that passion is and what it entails on a day-to-day basis. I am incredibly proud and I will defend the American soccer culture. I will raise my hand and recognize and admit that it is very different, that it is very unique relative to other soccer cultures around. But in no way does that diminish it in my eyes. In no way does that mean that it is any less, and once again, we'll use this word, passionate when it comes to how much people love the sport, how much people pay attention to the sport. Do we have the numbers that other countries have? Maybe not in certain instances, but I do believe that we have an equal, and in some cases even more so, amount of passion when it comes to the game. One thing that we don't have, and we've talked about this before on the pod, is this element of violence and this fanatical type of approach that as we said earlier in the pod, crosses the line. That's a good thing, and I hope we never get there. And in doing so, do we possibly sacrifice fostering a generation of players that benefit from living in that type of cauldron, living in that type of culture and environment that at times does cross the line? Maybe, but I'm willing to take that risk because I believe that ultimately over time we will produce world-class soccer players, we will produce a World Cup winning type of team, and we will produce a country and a culture that is viewed not just internally but externally as something to emulate. But it won't have that element that too often scars our game. Once again, before we go, I want to make sure because I know people are going to accuse me of it, I can just feel it coming. In no way am I condoning any of the violence out there that exists. I'm merely pointing out that it is this part of the passion and the culture of the game that at times has helped foster all of these players that we love uh, to watch. And what would it be and what would they be without it? That's not a reason to keep it, but it's just a reason uh, that I'm giving in order to think about this thing in a different way. Regardless, look, if you're listening to this home or someplace else, don't be a moron. Don't be stupid. You're not being passionate when you do these types of things. As a matter of fact, you're breaking the law and you should be treated as the criminal that you are when you do do those things. Uh, And I hope that that never is something that the American soccer culture, let alone the American sports culture, has. I hope it's never infected by this because... While it may produce better soccer players, it ultimately, I think, brings us down as a society, and we will pay a price going forward. Okay, on that note, thank you so much for listening. Mossy, anything uh, to say before we go? Uh, Michigan basketball, big game this week against <laughs> North Carolina. <laughs> moving on, moving on. You guys aren't making the Final Four, right? It's uh, the, uh, not, the the playoffs, right? The Michigan oh, in Wolverines in college. Uh, no, no that, that's not happening. That will will Ohio, will Ohio State make it? The uh, they are in in contention, in contention now, after right? having beaten your Wolverines. Correct. Dark days up there in uh, Ann Arbor for the Wolverines and for the uh, Wolverine alumni, uh, of one of which I am staring at right now. Don't worry. This, this too shall pass. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if the Buckeyes win the uh, national championship after that? Let me just say this about the <laughs> Michigan-Ohio State rivalry. We'll beat them next year. There you go. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, each and every week. You can find us all on Twitter and Facebook and all that. Send us your questions. Uh, as I said, all the different platforms out there. We are on Spotify. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. We're on all those different things out there. Thank you so much for all the support that you have given uh, that you continue to give. Uh, it's a labor of love when it comes to this. So we will talk again next week. And as always, size the day. <laughs>